Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day and for the freedom and opportunity to come together to discuss topics of mutual interest and to be able to figure out how to better motivate ourselves and others when it comes to health. As we were reminded yesterday by Elder Wilson, there is a pressing need for total member involvement when it comes to engagement in ministries of redemption and the reduction of suffering that we rob you of if our health is not optimized. So please be with us as we review a lot of material on how to motivate ourselves and others towards a better optimization of health with the goal of then being involved in ministries to reduce suffering and redeem humanity, all for your glory. In your name, amen. So we have an aim problem when it comes to health in our country. We have an aim problem in our states, in our counties, in our communities, even in our churches and homes. People aren't aiming high enough when it comes to health. There are increasing, increasing rates of obesity. People are still losing their lives and the lives of their loved ones to heart disease and cancer and other uh, preventable diseases at times. And is little conscious planning being done by several people to aim towards a higher health goal. And that is what I'd like to discuss with you today, how we can aim higher and the best ways that psychology um, in motivation and human personality can help us achieve those aims. In chapter 36 of Mind, Character, and Personality, volume one, aptly called Principles of Motivation, Ellen White states, success in any line demands a definite aim. He who would achieve true success in life must keep steadily in view the aim worthy of his endeavor. And later in that same page, another quote, an aimless life is a living death. The mind should dwell upon themes relating to our eternal interests. This will be conducive to health of body and mind. Now, I got interested in this topic about two years ago. I'm an internal medicine physician working as a hospitalist in Northwest Georgia, for those of you that don't know me. Um, and I realized that sometimes how I said things to patients wasn't the most effective. And I realized my ignorance in how to best accomplish effective uh, motivating. And that's what led me to go into in an in-depth discussion and study of the psychology of motivation and human personality and led me to read also a lot in the spirit of prophecy on the need to develop aims. Now one of my psychology professors as an undergraduate, because I did psychology along with uh, pre-medical requirements before going into medical school, uh, once told me that if something worthwhile grips you, you ignore it at your peril. So here I am, as this subject has gripped me, and I want to share it with you. One of the warnings we have also in the Bible has to do with our Laodicean condition. We are prone to comfort and ease. And there's a, 
stern warning from Christ in Matthew 25, 29, that for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. So that's a warning that we need to be aiming higher when it comes to health. Another thing to keep in mind is you don't get what you don't aim for, whereas you might get what you aim for. Even if your aim isn't accurate at first, as long as you have a clear aim to pursue and make progress towards it is better than having no aim. Because the definition of having no aim or continuously missing the mark is sin, right? Hamartia. But on the, on the other hand, Christ also has good news for us. He came to give us life, and life more abundantly, John 10.10. 10. Here's another quote I wanted to share from Ellen White. God is well pleased if those striving for eternal life aim high. There will be strong temptations to indulge the natural traits of character by becoming worldly-wise, scheming, and selfishly ambitious. But every temptation resisted is a priceless victory gained in subduing self. It bends the powers to the service of Jesus and increases faith, hope, patience, and forbearance. Let us aim in the strength of Jesus for the crown heavy with stars. They that be wise shall shine as the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. So what is going to be our health aim for the next couple of minutes here? I propose that every aim should have a why, a how, and a what. And like I mentioned last night, um, when it comes to health, many of us have already heard quite a bit about the why and the what, the what being our health message and wholeness, but not much time seems to be devoted to an in-depth discussion of the how, and that's what I want to get into today. But first, Let's get into the what a little more, okay? So we know the SDA health message teaches that pure water, fresh air, safe, prudent sunlight, exercise, avoidance of toxins and mind-altering drugs, and a whole plant-based diet with simple but varied foods that we make appetizing with spices is good for us. Stress reduction is very important, especially in this day and age of increasing burnout and taking environmental precautions from chemicals, pollutants, and fumes, also good to keep in mind. A few years ago, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation sponsored a study in the United States published in JAMA in 2013 that wanted to identify the 17 leading risk factors in the U.S. for uh, mortality and also morbidity. And number one came in as dietary risk. So what we're eating has a lot to do with our morbidity and mortality in our nation. Number two is tobacco smoking. Three, high blood pressure. Four, a high BMI and five, physical inactivity and low physical activity. So it's safe to say that in the United States and other developed nations, processed food and tobacco are still killing us slowly. And there's a lot of corporate interests that want our money but not our health. As you can see, um, there's proposals, now this is a joke, but there are proposals from companies 
and how to get people to eat their food pyramid that's all about their bottom line and profit and not your health. So we have to be sometimes disagreeable to that as we'll get into. For us Adventists, you know, we talk a lot about not eating meat and eating healthful foods, but it's still hard for us to get away from processed foods. We know we live in an industrialized nation and it's tough to not eat anything on the left-hand side all the time and only eat things on the right-hand side. But the ideal that we should be in pursuit of and aiming for is things on the right-hand side, whole plant-based foods, little processing, little foods, little uh, nutrients extracted from them, from, we, from what we see on the left. And that has led some lifestyle doctors to conclude that processed food is the new tobacco because there's a lot of commercial impetus to promote you know, foods on the left and not as much on the right because the, the money is not quite as, as uh, hard, easy to come by with foods on the right for them. Every couple of years, the CDC publishes data on the leading killers in the U.S. And uh, I, the last one I saw was from 2016 data. And number one is still heart disease, so that is the most likely reason you or a family member will lose their life. Number two is cancer, which is gaining on heart disease, and they thought that within the next 10 years, uh, cancer would become number one, but more recent data I saw is showing that heart disease um, ticked upwards again recently, so it's still number one and expected to continue in that position for the next several years. Number three, which, which was a change from the 2010 data, is accidents. And probably the big thing that contributed to that is, you know, your cell phones. Distracted driving. Huge. Everybody's car insurance rates are going up, you know. And that's one of the main causes. And then uh, chronic lower respiratory diseases like emphysema, chronic bronchitis, or COPD used to be number three, but is now number four. Accidents used to be number six and went up to number three. So that's a big change, I think. So heart disease, as we all know, is caused by a common process called atherosclerosis, where you get buildup of plaque and cholesterol in your arteries that impairs the needed nutrients and blood flow to your organs. And depending on where in the body it occurs, if it's in your brain, we call it ischemia or cerebral infarction or stroke. If it's in your heart, myocardial infarction or heart attack. In your kidney, you get ischemia too. And in your legs, um, you can get what's called a symptom called claudication, where when you walk, you get intense pain and have to take breaks all the same process and the number one reason you or a loved one will die so very important to keep your arteries healthy by eating more whole plant-based foods and exercising and following you know the elements of our SDA health plan and like I mentioned number three nowadays is accidents so please don't do this you know young people trying to get Instagram famous or this kind of stuff or this, you know, number three cause of death in the U.S. now is distracted driving and accidents that could have been prevented. Now, not all accidents can be prevented. There's also falls in the elderly. I mean, you know, there's, there's exercise programs and, and 
things that can be done to reduce the risk, but sometimes gravity will still take you down and just be the most cautious you can, you know, if, if you're frail and at risk for falling. All right, so we talked a little bit about the what. Now let's talk a little bit about the why before we get into the how. So anytime we have things of value, we need to form hierarchies because with hierarchies come um, an element of organization and a structure within which you can carry that value better. And it's true that across our population, some people are better at things than others. And so we need a system where we get the most talented people at the top that can give impetus or propel the values forward. And I propose that for Seventh-day Adventists, the number one value that we should strive for is the glorification of God. Below would be to redeem and reduce suffering, which ASI is a great event to come to, to learn more about those and get involved in those. But if our health is not optimized, we are robbing God of being involved in these ministries that bring glory to him. So this is where I'm passionate about to spend more time discussing how to optimize, because there's a lot to unpack there. Here's another quote that I love from Ellen White from our High Calling devotional, page 64. I have seen that those who live for a purpose seeking to benefit and bless their fellow men and to honor and glorify their Redeemer, there's the glory of God as the number one goal, are the truly happy ones on the earth. While the man who is restless, discontented, and seeking this and testing that, hoping to find happiness, is always complaining of disappointment. He is always in want, never satisfied, because he lives for himself alone. Let it be your aim to do good or reduce suffering, to act your part in life faithfully, find time to comfort some other heart, to bless with a kind, cheering word someone who is battling with temptation and maybe affliction, and thus blessing another with cheering, hopeful words, pointing him to the burden bearer, you may unexpectedly find peace, happiness, and consolation yourself. If you go back to that pyramid of values that I had with the hierarchy of glory to God, reduction of suffering, and um, ministries of redemption, and optimizing health, if you compare and contrast that to the values of our secular world, what would you think would be at the top? Probably the pursuit of happiness, right? It's embedded in our declaration of independence. And below that, most people probably want money, wealth, fame, beauty, and things of a transient nature. But what's the problem if your ultimate pursuit is happiness? It's like setting across the Pacific on a shallow boat. Soon as you hit some storms, you'll know that you need something deeper to sustain you. You need to aim higher. Happiness can come to you more likely as a side effect if you aim for ultimate meaning, which I propose is the glorification of God and the reduction of suffering around you. And um, psychiatrists and other mental health professionals have come to that conclusion decades after the spirit of prophecy, which is a common theme. 
And this person you may know of, Viktor Frankl, he was a psychiatrist and neurologist who survived the Holocaust. His whole family was murdered. He talks about, in, in this book, so The Man's Search for Meaning, which is not for the faint of heart, because it describes the psychology of going into concentration camps and how you go through a delusion of reprieve, thinking you'll be let go at some point. Then you go through a second stage where you emotionally detach from your prior life, and then a later stage where suffering just infuses your whole body and your soul like a gas in the gas chambers they annihilated people. But he was able to survive the Holocaust and Auschwitz and wrote this book and developed a psychotherapy called logotherapy where he pointed people to aim towards meaning rather than happiness because when you aim for meaning you are more likely to have happiness as your side effect and be able to tolerate suffering than if you aim for happiness as your ultimate goal because if your ultimate goal is happiness and you know World War II comes to you there goes your happiness you need something deeper so he also um, mentioned that the individual reason that World War II happened was when normal citizens failed to develop their character for the better, failed to take up responsibility, strive for meaning, and reduce suffering around them. And when that happened, it developed a ripple effect where others around them also failed to do the same. And when the opportunity to commit evil came, they did not have the fortitude of character to say no. And World War II came and it became a living hell for everyone involved. You and your family, the worst place you could be in. On the why, Ellen White writes, there are but few as yet who are aroused sufficiently to understand how much the habits of diet have to do with their health, their characters, their usefulness in this world, and their eternal destiny. I saw that it is the duty of those who have received the light from heaven and have realized the benefit of walking in it to manifest a greater interest for those who are still suffering for want of knowledge. Sabbath keepers who are looking for the soon appearing of their Savior should be the last to manifest a lack of interest in this great work of reform. Men and women must be instructed, and ministers and people should feel that the burden of the work rests upon them to agitate the subject and urge it home upon others. Testimonies for the Church. Much of the prejudice that prevents the truth of the third angel's message from reaching the hearts of the people might be removed if more attention were given to health reform. When people become interested in this subject, the way is often prepared for the entrance of other truths. If they see that we are intelligent with regard to health, they will be more ready to believe that we are sound in Bible doctrines. So a lot of us may have already heard this, but it's a good refresher before we get into the how. Because the truth is that we have, as Adventists have been given the work of advancing health reform. The Lord desires that his people be in harmony with one another. It, the health reform, will go forward, for it is the Lord's means of lessening the suffering 
going back to that um, hierarchy of values just before glorification of God, in our world and of purifying his people. Men will never be truly temperate until the grace of Christ is an abiding principle in the heart. Circumstances cannot work reforms. Christianity proposes a reformation in the heart. What Christ will be worked out under the dictation of a The plan of beginning outside and trying to work inward has always failed and will always fail. God's plan with you is to begin at the very seat of all difficulties, the heart. And then from out of the heart will issue the principles of righteousness. The reformation will be outward as well as inward. So the how is all about making it a purpose in our hearts to strive for a higher aim. All right. Let's get into the how now. The how is all about motivation. So what is motivation? Motivation is energy for change. It comes from the root Latin word motivus, which means to move or stir. And when it comes to motivation, um, psychologists have figured out that most people think of motivation the wrong way. They think of motivation in terms of quantity. If only I had more motivation to exercise or less motivation to eat cookies, for instance, is what many people think of. But that is the wrong way to think of motivation. Motivation is best understood as in terms of its quality or source. And there are two types of motivation. One is called controlled or extrinsic motivation, which is your family, you know, nagging you or nudging you to go see the doctor or go do this or go do that. Your peers or societal pressures that tell you you should be this, you should do that, you should strive for this, etc. That is a less optimal form of motivation where outside forces control your behavior. The other kind is called autonomous or intrinsic motivation. That's when something grips you and you can't let go of it. You have an interest and free will or volition in that behavior and you want to align your behaviors with your values. That gives you more autonomous motivation, which is what motivational psychologists say we should aim for to have more success. And um, this comes from uh, Dr. Edward Deasy, who's a psychologist who specialized in motivation, and he teaches in Rochester, New York, and with other psychologists developed what's called self-determination theory co-founder of self-determination theory, and he wrote a book, Why We Do What We Do, which goes into detail about controlled and autonomous motivation and why it's so important to aim for autonomous motivation in yourself and in those you're trying to motivate. So how do you do that? How do you aim for autonomous motivation? One of the main things is to get interested in the topic. Get interested in health. Like Ellen White said, uh, people aren't stirred up enough in terms of health reform. You need to get more interested in it. There are three psychological needs that must be satisfied in order 
to have a higher likelihood of autonomous or intrinsic motivation. And those are autonomy, competence, and relatedness. And these aren't just suggestions. These psychologists have found out that they are needs, psychological needs, that if they are not satisfied, you will likely be driven by controlled motivation and not autonomous motivation. So number one, autonomy. Again, that's a feeling that you are the locus of your behavior. You are the author of your behavior. You have some free will to act out what you want. Competence is not so much your skill set, but more so the feeling that the effort you are engaging in is worth it, that you are able to get to the goal or destination. And relatedness, like the word implies, is a sense of belonging, that you belong to a group like ASI or Adventism, and that you can uh, interact with other people and, and achieve that sense or need of belonging to something greater than you. So if you have these three things met, your motivation is likely to be of the higher quality, autonomous or intrinsic motivation. So the right question when we talk about motivating others is not how do we best motivate others, but rather how do we create an environment within which other people will be autonomously motivated? And that's what we need to be thinking about. So, how do you support autonomy? Out of those three things, you know, we have good relatedness often in, in events like ASI and in our churches and other places, and uh, competence um, also important, but autonomy seems to be the one that is most difficult to satisfy in a lot of people, because there are certain personalities out there that like to you know, proscribe or tell you, do this or do that, and that's not helpful to autonomous motivation. So the first step to support someone else's autonomy or your own is to take the other's perspective or get interested, like I said. Believe in them. Offer appropriate choice more often. If you are in a one-up position as an administrator or as a physician or as a parent, as a coach, as a teacher, you need to figure out how to offer appropriate choice more often. So one practical thing you could do with your kids, for instance, is give them two or three options of how to dress themselves in the morning. You know, you put some reasonable limits or constraints. You don't tell them just go into your closet and pick anything because that may take too long, right? But you give them two or three options and that supports their autonomy. They feel like they were able to choose between two or three options that you pre-selected for them. So that's one way to think about it. And then provide encouragement rather than pressure or coercion. Model the process. Avoid being a hypocrite. And promote experimentation within reasonable limits. Some other ideas on how to support autonomy. Acknowledge potential conflict or resistance when limits are set. This is good with your kids, with your students, with your employees, if you're in a corporation or other things. Sometimes you have to set limits, but how to set autonomy supportive limits is something good to think about. You want to make sure you acknowledge that there may be resistance. And the next point is skillfully articulate the reasons for the limits. 
the why. And, and God does this with us. God supports our autonomy. He believes in free will. The universe is set up on free will. But yet there are still certain limits because he is the creator, we are the created. But he skillfully articulated all of those reasons for us in the Bible. Some of us, with certain personalities that we'll get into that make it difficult to motivate others, will need to undergo autonomy support training to help. Then, uh, selecting optimal challenges or expectations is helpful. Invest in the development of those you are trying to help and encourage the adoption of responsibility. Now, here's a warning. Whenever we talk about creating an environment within which other people can be motivated or seeking out to motivate others towards higher health aims, we have to bind our ambition to do that with humility because there is often a lot for us to be work working on ourselves. And if we don't get our act together, that will have consequences, ripple effects like we talked about with World War II. We need to be working ourselves on our characters and on aiming high in terms of optimizing our health and bind our ambition with humility before we engage in the large-scale transformation of people. So it really starts with you and me. Last year, ASI was in Orlando. Remember Rosen Creek? One of the things, that if you drove there, that you may have seen is that they do uh, controlled fires so that when a big fire may come, there'll be less damage. They do a little bit of the burning of shrub and dead wood to protect against more excessive burning later that will be more painful and hard on the forest. And one idea in terms of thinking about how to focus on getting our act together when it comes to health is that we all are sinners and in need of rescue. And we all have dead wood that needs to be sacrificed. And it's better to help God burn that which is unworthy in us sooner rather than later before it grows to be too much and a more devastating fire will need be needed the element of sacrifice, which basically, if you think of it, when you commit to a higher health aim, you are sacrificing other options. Just like when you commit to marry a single person, you sacrifice other options. When you commit to a certain career, you sacrifice other options. Commitment and sacrifice are one and the same. They are the same thing, essentially. Commitment has to equal sacrifice. So this is how we should think about it. First, focus on what's right in front of you that you will suffer for and that others in your sphere of influence will suffer for if you get wrong. Get your own health in order, get your own act together, and then you may be in better condition to work on your friends, coworkers, acquaintances, clients, patients, community, and society. It, it's like the picture some have of the smoking doctor in the 50s or 60s, you know, or the smoking cardiologist or neurologist. That's not the person you want to go to, right? 
in Principles of Motivation, the chapter I told you from Mind, Character, and Personality, there's another quote I like from Ellen White. Many do not become what they might because they do not put forth the power that is in them. They do not, as they might, lay hold on divine strength. So I propose we should rekindle our ancient roots of the uh, Israelite people. Jacob was the first Israelite. And he was named Israel, which means he who wrestles with God. When we talk about health and optimizing it and being involved in ministries to reduce suffering and redeem others, we will be met with resistance. There will be struggles that we will have to face, traits of our character that we will come up against, ambivalence to resolve, but we should fight against that and wrestle with God and ask him to not let us go until he blesses us. So let's go through two things on the how that I think are very important to motivate ourselves and others, we need to be self-aware and develop a deeper understanding of self-control. We talked about the hierarchy of SDA values. I would propose that to better optimize health, we need better control. And we can't do that without Christ. How do we become more self-aware? Ministry of Healing. Every child and every youth should have a knowledge of himself. He should understand the physical habitation that God has given him and the laws by which it is kept in health. So, there have been recent advancements in the, pers in the psychology of human personality that I think are incredibly interesting. And this I cannot wait to share with you. About two years ago, I took a personality test. You know, through medical school, they, they have you take several personality tests, like the Meyer-Briggs um, or others that are not bad. And there's also the Big Five, which is part of what I'm going to talk with, about. But over the last few years, some psychologists have pushed the understanding of human personality and added more high-resolution words to describe all the elements and facets of human personality in much more greater detail from, with which, from which we can get practical tips to uh, motivate ourselves and others when it comes to health. And one of these psychologists that, that pushed the understanding of human personality is Jordan Peterson, who together with other psychologists um, did a lot of research in in human personality to detail all the different elements. And there's also statistics between men and women, liberals and conservatives, and practical tips we can get from that on character building that we'll get into. So here are the big five personality traits. Oh, this page I showed you here understandmyself.com, that's where um, the best personality test out there right now, I think, is. Now, there's other places on the internet you can go to that will have free personality tests on the big five, for instance, to know where you are on the spectrum. 
but this one has 10 additional high resolution words that give you additional detail as to where you are and can help inform appropriate health aims and goals. And it's not free, I think it's like $10, and I have no conflict of interest to report other than admiration for the work these psychologists have done. But just keep that in mind, because you may be interested in it after we get through this. So the big five, and some of you may be aware of these, but you may not be aware of the other words we'll get into, are extroversion, neuroticism, agreeableness, conscientiousness, and openness to experience. Now, a little bit about the background of the Big Five personality test. So, psychologists several decades ago realized that the English language already had within it all the vocabulary and words that described all different facets and elements of human personality. But they figured that some words were better descriptors of human personality than others. So they put all the adjectives that had something to do with human personality through what's called factor analysis, and they distilled the highest resolution words or the best, most precise words to describe these elements of human personality, and these are it. And then more recently, that psychologist I mentioned developed two aspects for each of the big five, which are two additional very precise words that went through this factor analysis that give you a lot more detail and insight that can be very helpful to you. Um, the extroversion is the domain of positive emotion. Neuroticism is the domain of negative emotion or how much energy you are expending on negative emotion. Agreeableness is a very interesting trait that I'll get to. Yes, question? The question was if someone was, is, is more on the introverted side, the, the better way to say it is they're just lower in extroversion. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, conscientiousness is the realm or domain of dutiful achievement. And openness to experience is the realm of creativity, artistic interest, entrepreneurialism, or interest in abstract ideas. So let's go through them in detail with the uh, more precise words that have been, the, been um, distilled more recently. So on the first one, extroversion, the other two words are enthusiasm, which Elder Wilson mentioned yesterday, and assertiveness. Okay? So I'm gonna, through each of these big five, I'm going to go through three things. Number one, some general descriptors of how other people may describe you depending on where you are along the spectrum. Two, differences between men and women statistically and uh, liberals and conservatives statistically because there's been some statistical evidence that people tend to vote their temperament when it comes to political reasons. Um, and then third, some practical health tips to align your exercise aims or other aims in terms of optimizing health aligned with your, where you are on the spectrum. Because you are more likely to have intrinsic motivation if you know where you are on the spectrum and align your aims with that than if you try to do something that doesn't come as naturally to you. You may be more in a controlled, you know, uh, motivational area. So, 
There are also pros and cons along the spectrum, okay, of, of each of these traits. So if you, I'll go through high extroversion. If you are highly extroverted, the, the pros can be, you know, you're more, more likely to be talkative, enthusiastic, assertive, like those two words say. You're gonna be gregarious, you're gonna have a loud laughter, you're gonna be contagious, and you're gonna be able to persuade people to get involved in things and motivate them that way. Um, the cons of being too high in extroversion is you may not be sensitive enough to the voices that are less assertive than you. You may interrupt them too much, right? And people lower on extroversion that we would call more introverts or loners um, may find you obnoxious if you're high in extroversion, right? Also, extroverts tend to be more self-disclosing. So in, a, in an audience like this, it's easy to spot them out. So who in here thinks they are 90th percentile or higher in extroversion? Enthusiasm and assertiveness. <laughs> Extroverts are more likely to be the out. It can be a good thing, right? Be a good thing. Um, in terms of your career goals, if you're an extrovert or high in extroversion, you want to get into sales or, or careers that involve dealing with a lot of people because that's where you derive your energy with. Whereas uh, careers like computer programming, accounting would not be a good suit for you at all. So you want to steer clear of those. Now when it comes to the differences between men and women, there's not a whole lot of difference in terms of uh, extroversion. Um, women tend to be slightly more enthusiastic, but it's not that big a difference. And men slightly more assertive, but again, the difference is not as prominent as in some of the other traits we'll get into. And in terms of uh, liberals and conservatives, also not that much of a difference in terms of this trait. Enthusiasm is about the same. Assertiveness, there's maybe a slight statistical tilt to liberals being a little less assertive than conservatives, but again, not as statistically significant as some of the other traits we'll get into. So that is extroversion. Now, a practical health tip. If you are high in extroversion, what kinds of exercises should you be aligning your goals with? Yeah, team sports. You wanna be doing things with a lot of people. So things like uh, CrossFit or Zumba, you know, or other team sports, that's what you want to aim your exercise towards. Because if you're doing uh, solo, um, solo walking or jogging or running, solo biking, that's not going to sustain. Whereas if you're lower in extroversion, you may be okay going running by yourself or biking by yourself or other things like that. Okay, so something to keep in mind on that. The next trait is neuroticism, and this is the domain of negative emotion, how much you expend energy in terms of negative emotion. And it has to do with your general sensitivity to pain, sadness, uh, grief, and anticipatory and reactionary anxiety. And the two higher resolution words are withdrawal and volatility. And the way to think of withdrawal is as something you withdraw from that may give you fear, okay? And you may have what's called more risk aversion if you're high in neuroticism. Volatility is more how impulsive you are, 
And, well, the word says it all there. So, what are the pros of being low in neuroticism? Well, you're less likely to get hung up over things. You may be able to do what's called make like a duck more often, where you just let things people say to you, rub, you know, slide off, not get too volatile with it. But the con on being too low in neuroticism is that you may, may engage in too much risky activity or not be conscious enough of the risk you are taking and you should be more risk averse at times because sometimes there are truly fearful situations or dangerous situations that you should pay heed to more. What are the um, pros of being high in neuroticism? Well, some people think there aren't any, but one of them is you're more risk averse. You may persuade a group of people off the cliff, okay? And there's some utility in that. But um, having that, your antenna out, you know, in the environment looking for danger does expend more of your energy and can tilt you towards mood disorders like depression and anxiety. And those, in turn, can get some people into substance use disorders like alcohol and other things. Differences between men and women. Women are higher in neuroticism statistically, and it's like 60% higher than the population of men and women combined. And the reason uh, psychologists think that is so is because uh, women care for infants. And like mother bears out in nature, your antenna as a mom have to be out scanning the environment for potential danger. And if there is danger, you will be impulsively jump to protect and reduce risk of your infants, which is a good thing, right? But having your antenna out comes at a cost. It expends more energy and can get you into mood disorders if you're too high in that. And uh, liberals and conservatives, not much difference uh, in these statistically. There, most of the differences in liberals and conservatives will be and the other two will go into. What, is, what are practical tips for health optimization depending on where you're on the spectrum? So if you're low in neuroticism, you may be okay doing rock climbing activities, right? Or, or sports that are more risky with high impact. If you're high in neuroticism, you may want to stay away from those because you'll be more risk averse in general. You may want to just do hiking or walking or things where you're less likely to get injured. So that can help. Also, one other thing from neuroticism. If you're high in neuroticism, you have to eat a big breakfast, preferably with some protein like nuts or legumes, because hypoglycemia magnifies uh, elements of neuroticism like irritability or impulsive anger and anxiety. And sometimes you can cure that just by eating a big breakfast. So that's another practical tip if you find yourself on that side of the spectrum when you take this test. So the third one is agreeableness, which is one of the ones I find most interesting. This is the domain of interpersonal uh, relationships, and it's also called the maternal domain or the pair bonding domain. And the two higher resolution words are compassion and politeness. If you're high in agreeableness, people will see you as kind, nice, nurturing, 
other-centered, always worried about, you know, helping others, and you're going to be a great caregiver. But that comes at a con sometimes of not people not knowing where you stand because you are conflict avoidant. You don't want to ruffle feathers. So you shy away from conflict, and sometimes conflict is needed to solve problems, right? Or to say things that must be said. One of the things that can happen if you're high in agreeableness is that resentment may raise its ugly head. And if you're high in agreeableness, you should consult your resentment because it is telling you there is something that needs to be said that you are not saying. And you should figure out the most tactful way to say that. Um, to do better. If you're low in agreeableness, people are likely to see you on the pro side as direct, bold, able to speak his mind uh, clearly and properly when needed, and not shying away from conflict when it's important and of value. On the con side, people are likely to see you as harsh, too critical, judgmental, stubborn, etc. Men and women do differ uh, statistically significantly on this trait. Women are about 60, 60th percentile in terms of agreeableness. Men, 40th percentile, if you plot the uh, bell curve, okay? And the evidence for that is who are the people incarcerated? What is the population? Men. 90% of men are incarcerated. They have less compassion and politeness. And you'll be in jail if you're extreme on that, okay? And the reason they think women biologically have higher agreeableness is because they also take care of infants. And the correct response to a crying infant of, you know, zero to six or nine months is always pure compassion. The infant is always right if it's crying. You as a parent are always wrong. Pure compassion is the right move. Okay? So, but that comes at a cost sometimes with them not speaking their mind, not engaging in conflict later in life, and being manipulated by the less agreeable people in the workplace. So women tend to get paid less. There's also a suspicion of a pink tax out there, what's called a pink tax, where women pay more for clothing and many other things just because of their agreeable nature. And um, people that are high in agreeableness tend to be scammed more often by scammers out there. And as people age in life, they tend to tilt a little bit more towards agreeableness and they have more resources being older, and that's why all the scammers for IRS scams and all these other scams are out there trying to see when they'll hit a highly agreeable with that they can manipulate and, and rob from. So if you're high in agreeableness, you have to beware of those people in the population lower in agreeableness that may be taking advantage of you. And consult your resentment that can give you a clue if that's taking place and of your need to maybe say something that hasn't been said. Um, when it comes to liberals and conservatives, there's not that much of a difference, but there is a slight tilt uh, for liberals to have a little bit more compassion than conservatives. That's where the term bleeding heart comes from. And there is a slight tilt for conservatives to have a little bit more politeness than compassion compared to liberals. 
practical tips for exercise uh, when it comes to where you are on the spectrum. If you're low in agreeableness, you need to go look for competitive sports, right? You're going to be competitive if you're low in agreeableness. You want to compete, you know, soccer, volleyball, anything that gets your competitive energy going is going to intrinsically motivate you. So you want to align your exercise towards something that is a competitive sport. If you're high in agreeableness, you may not care that much about competition. In fact, you may just want to you know, do exercise for the fun of it or for the purpose of relating more deeply with someone else. And you may want to think of other activities um, that can do that, like going to uh, walking with several people or doing a Pilates, you know, yoga or other things like that. The next trait is conscientiousness, and this is the domain of beautiful achievement. Most people that are successful in life have high conscientiousness. It's the number one predictor of success in life. And I guarantee most people at ASI are going to be pretty high in conscientiousness. The two higher resolution words are industriousness and orderliness, which add a lot more detail to this trait. These are the aspects. So uh, people high in conscientiousness tend to have a sense of obligation, a sense of duty, a good work ethic. They persevere, they're cleanly, they organize their lives, and they're very orderly. And people lower in conscientiousness uh, will be more of procrastinators. They'll sit and gossip instead of get work done. They'll take longer. And they're more likely to be rebels, you know, uh, less likely interested in order, a little bit more of a tilt towards chaos, okay? In terms of men and women, women are slightly more conscientious than men, like in the 55th percentile to 45th men. And uh, the major difference is in orderliness. And some of the evidence for that is who, who typically takes care of more of the cleanliness in the home? It's usually the wife. Not always. You know, these are just tilts or tendencies. There's obviously exceptions along the spectrum. But it's typically the wife. And, um, but it's not that much of a difference. So if the wife lets chaos continue for a little bit, eventually the conscientiousness of the husband will kick in and he'll take care of the, of the house. So if you're tired of being the one cleaning the house all the time, just let it go bad enough until the husband kicks in and his conscientiousness will help you out. Um, so the other thing, in terms of uh, liberals and conservatives, this aspect called orderliness is the second uh, most important differentiator between liberals and conservatives. Conservatives have a statistically significant tilt or tendency towards having more orderliness. And that is seen by their tendency to like uh, tight borders around things, like tight borders sexually, tight borders familially, tight borders with their uh, churches and counties and states and borders, that tends to be a conservative push. And it's appropriate, it's reasonable often, you know. You have to sometimes define borders clearly and have some order because within order you can get things done. But in the extreme, like Jesus dealt with in his time, 
order can go too far and traditions of men can come in like with the Pharisees and the Sabbath where Jesus challenged them and said is it better to kill or to heal on the Sabbath so that that can be the tendency there and liberals tend to have less orderliness there uh, industriousness they're about the same not as much difference between liberals and conservatives so what are practical health tips depending on where you are on this spectrum and most people here I'm sure will be higher in industriousness and orderliness like I find myself if you're low in these things you probably need a personal trainer right someone to help get you motivated to do things because you may not have the organization or the perseverance to do it on your own so it may be a worthwhile endeavor to invest in a personal trainer if you're extremely high in conscientiousness you may want a personal trainer too but for a different purpose for the purpose of helping you not work too hard or or you know injure yourself you may want someone saying hey you got to take it easy got to take a break and, and, and do it step at a time. So personal trainer along the spectrum may be helpful there. The other thing is if you're low in conscientiousness, you may be okay doing exercise or activities that aren't that clean, like playing football or rugby and mud. Things like that may not bother you as much. If you're high in conscientiousness, you may want to keep things more neat, maybe play tennis or squash or things like that, you know? So some things to keep in mind. All right, the last big five trait is openness to experience. And the two higher resolution words are openness or creativity is the other uh, word there, and intellect. Now, intellect is not to be confused with IQ, has nothing to do with IQ. It, intellect is more so your verbal intelligence, how articulate you are, how, able to, how articulate you are in expressing ideas, and your propensity to like abstract thoughts and complex puzzles, things like that. If you are high in openness to experience at the trait level, you are likely to be seen as someone as transformed, you know, open to new experiences, always pursuing novelty, trying new uh, things. And if you're low in openness, you may be seen as someone that likes routine, predictability of schedule, etc. Men and women uh, differ a little bit in this. Women tend to be a little bit more openness, but it's not as dramatic as we saw with the neuroticism and the agreeableness traits. And uh, men tend to have a little bit more intellect and personality than women but it's just a slight tilt not as much as the other two liberals and conservatives this is the number one distinguisher of liberals and conservatives liberals at the trait level have more openness to experience than conservatives and that is the number one differentiator whereas the second one we mentioned was uh, conscientiousness more specifically orderliness so what are things you can do if for exercise if you're low or high on the spectrum so if you're low on openness you may want to pick certain exercises or activities that are predictable and routine and that you like and that you can stick with and you may not be interested in much novelty or switching back and forth from different activities if you're high in openness to experience you're going to be looking for new activities new sports to try always going for novelty so you want to try to align your aims 
along that. So I'm going to quiz you all because I think it's very important to know the vocabulary for these personality traits and aspects because when you relate to other people, if you know where you stand along the spectrum and have some idea of where the person you're trying to motivate stands along the spectrum, you may be able to call out the intrinsic motivators from their personality when you help them devise a health aim, okay? So to review, extroversion, the two words are enthusiasm and assertiveness, neuroticism, withdrawal and volatility, agreeableness, compassion and politeness, conscientiousness, industriousness and orderliness, and openness to experience, openness, which is creativity, and intellect. All right, let's, go through, let's have some fun now and go through some Bible characters and see if you can tell me where you think they lie on those traits. Let's go through Samson. That's a good one to start. So let's go low, average, or high. For extroversion, where do you think he was? Probably high, right? He was a partier, loved going you know, parties to parties, and I could see him as talkative and very enthusiastic and assertive with things. What about neuroticism? Low, you think? Yeah. So, well, he was probably low in withdrawal to fear, right? I mean, he was super strong, but volatility is probably what got him into trouble in the first place, right? He was impulsive and very volatile. So because he was low in withdrawal but high in volatility, it probably averages out to, you know, middle of the distribution probably, or the spectrum. What about agreeableness? Oh, yeah, very low. If, if you're killing things, you're very low in agreeableness. <laughs> No compassion or politeness. So, what about conscientiousness? Yeah. Shaggy long hair, not the clean cut hair. Um, that's a clue, right? <laughs> and then um, people that tend towards rebellion or rebellious behavior are going to be low conscientiousness. What about openness to experience? Yeah, he's high. So, he, he had some tilt, you know towards liberalism, we would say, with, with those two differences there. What about Ruth? Where do you think she was on extroversion? Probably average, hard to say, but yeah, I don't think particularly very high, maybe average. Neuroticism? Low? Yeah, low, maybe low average, somewhere in there. As a woman, she'd be a little bit higher, but definitely you don't hear much about extreme volatility or, or withdrawal there. What about agreeableness? Definitely high. And you can see some of the pros of agreeableness in her story. What about conscientiousness? Definitely. Openness to experience? Average to high, probably, yeah. Esther, that's a good one. Extroversion, where do you think she was on the spectrum? Probably high, maybe average, average to high. Beauty um, tends to get you at least average, maybe high sometimes. Uh, enthusiasm and things. But probably not extremely high though, overall. Oh, sorry, let's go through the other ones. Um, so extroversion, what about neuroticism? Did she withdraw to fear? No. Was she volatile? No. 
but she wasn't so low in volatility that it prevented her to take a stand when needed, when evil was being done or about to be done. So low to average maybe. And agreeableness? High, but not so high that it prevented her from being blunt and direct when needed, right? So she, she demonstrated some godly range there. And, uh, sorry, one more. Uh, agreeableness, conscientiousness. I would say high too, yeah. And openness to experience. Yeah, good. What about Saul of Tarsus, later known as Paul? Where do you think he was on extroversion? Definitely. What about neuroticism? Averaged uh, maybe a little high on some things. He was impulsive, definitely. There's some evidence of that. Um, and, but he was low in withdrawal to fear because, I think, of his low agreeableness, right? He was killing Christians before his conversion. It was after his conversion that he developed range towards more agreeableness and compassion, but he maintained some of the of being which are being blunt, direct, and having people know where you stand. What about conscientiousness? Probably initially, yeah, initially average, but then became more high. And then openness to experience? Average to high, probably somewhere in there. What about the, Refor the Protestant reformers? Where do you think they were on extroversion? Yeah. Assertiveness and enthusiasm, definitely high. Neuroticism, low withdrawal, probably average volatility, right? They did not sit idly by when injustice was in their midst with the Catholicism, right? Agreeableness, they, they, probably, they had some Christly range, I think, there. But yeah, probably average. They, they were blunt and direct when needed. Um, but they also had uh, some compassion, I believe. Conscientiousness? Yes, high. Openness to experience? Average to high, probably there. And then what about uh, revolutionary rebels like the French Revolution or Che Guevara in South America? Extroversion? High. Neuroticism? Yeah, high volatility especially. Agreeableness? Low. Conscientiousness? Low. Openness to experience? Super high. They were, they were about opening Pandora's box, right? Transforming uh, society, tearing down hierarchies. That, that's when, you know, liberalism can go too far, is when you take conscientiousness too low and openness too high. All right. I want to spend some time in this slide, I think there's some practical stuff for us here. So if you take this test and you find out where you are on the spectrum of these five traits with the two other words, you can, for instance, this is just an example, plot where you are on the spectrum, right? And think of it as musical instruments that form together the melody or harmony that is you. Each of these traits is like a subpersonality that when they come together, define who you are. Where do you think Christ is? Christ was along the spectrum. You couldn't place him, right? 
He knew, he transcended the spectrum. He, he knew how to only use the pros along the spectrum to perfection. And he is our model. For instance, on extroversion, he hung out with the multitudes. He talked all day. He was talkative. You could see him telling jokes to the kids and playing with the kids. But then he took time away to pray uh, with God and to have some alone time as well. So he developed range there. He showed us range there. Neuroticism. Christ was low in neuroticism when he was spit on his face, when he was assaulted, whipped, and crucified. He did not fight back, right? He did not become volatile. But he did have some righteous volatility when he went to the temple and saw the evil merchants there and, you know, threw over the tables. And he also did not put up with evil and called it how it should be called. And so he, de he demonstrated some range there. With agreeableness, he was low in agreeableness with the Pharisees, right? And the Sadducees, blunt, direct. Only the pros, though. Only the pros along the spectrum. But he was more agreeable with the sinners and those in need of redemption. Conscientiousness. He was very high, highly committed to his duty of redeeming man. But he didn't let that become too rigid to the point he uh, neglected children, okay? Or he neglected uh, other relationships with other people because of his duty. Sometimes when you get too conscientious, you can get rigid and inflexible. But Christ demonstrated some range, whereas he prevented that happening. Another thing that can happen if you're very high in conscientiousness, there, there can be disgust sensit sensitivity that can develop where you become disgusted at people less conscientious than you, or even yourself, you can get disgusted at. So that's something to be aware of, that Christ showed us how not to do. Openness to experience. The example I come up with here is in terms of his miracles. He was very creative with some miracles, like putting the coin in the fish to pay the taxes, but then he had other routine miracles, like healing a whole village all day long. So he had range there too. And you want a practical tip on how to develop your character? Develop range. You are going to be somewhere along the spectrum biologically. You're going to be constrained by your biology. But Christ is calling us all for, to develop individualized aims for character development by starting from point A where we are genetically or biologically and following his model to develop range. So if you're low in, in extroversion, you may want to associate with people that are more enthusiastic than you and that can infuse you with enthusiasm for total member involvement. If you are low, so low in neuroticism that you are complicit in evil, you need to develop some righteous irritability and you know volatility to stop evil, okay? And if you're high in neuroticism, you need to sometimes help God or ask God to help you um, confront fear when needed and to temper your impulsivity. And on down the line, you can create a character development plan by 
moving beyond the constraints of your biology, defining an aim of how to do that, reading the Gospels and seeing how Christ perfectly moved along the spectrum, using only the prose. So I thought that was great. And that fits into Peter's ladder from 2 Peter 1, 5 to 7. The vocabulary I just went over with you, I think, is great knowledge that all of you should have. You should memorize these words. They are the, the best words to describe your personality and those of others. If you, if you know them well and can apply them, you will have the knowledge that can then help you with temperance. And that's what I want to get to. Self-control, next. So it is no surprise to us that we are not the masters of our own homes or of our own house. There are evidences for this in the fact that we have dreams that we cannot control, right? There are impulses that we also can't control easily. There are things that interest us or grip us that we can't easily control. So we are not masters of our house and we need self-control. There's also several people in our midst, you know, out in, people we see that have addiction problems and they need a lot of help and self-control. And alcohol, I think, is still the most dangerous. There's a lot of other drugs, but no drug makes people as violent and dangerous as alcohol. It's been around much longer than other drugs now, but I still see it as the most dangerous drug. So what do we do to gain self-control? Do we just straightjacket everybody? Let's read what Ellen White said. With our first parents, intemperate desire resulted in the loss of Eden. Temperance in all things has more to do with our restoration to Eden than men realize. One of the most deplorable effects of the original apostasy was the loss of man's power of self-control. Only as this power is regained can there be real progress. We cannot be too often reminded that health does not depend on chance. It is a result of obedience to law. This is recognized by the contestants in athletic games and trials of strength. These men make the most careful preparation. They submit to thorough training and strict discipline. Every physical habit is carefully regulated. They know that neglect, excess, or carelessness, which weakens or cripples any organ or function of the body, would ensure defeat. The fruits of the spirit tell us that self-control is there, and before self-control, we have gentleness or meekness that I wanted to get into. Meekness immediately precedes self-control in Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit. And when we think of meekness, sometimes we think of someone too gentle, maybe even weak in terms of worldly terms. But the Greeks used the word meek to imply an animal that had been tamed or broken in. Or what I found more deep and interesting was a warrior with a sharp sword that decides to keep it sheathed. Meekness is not simply a matter of passive submission to a stronger force. It involves an active choice to accept instruction. Sometimes meek animals can do the most amazing things. They are strong indeed. And the other term the Greeks use for meekness is a warrior with a sharp sword that can do you a lot of damage, but that had the self-control to keep it sheathed. That is the term meekness. And the meek shall inherit the earth, the Bible says. So he who has meekness or self-control will inherit the earth. Who struggled with meekness? Peter, right? Did he keep his, short, his sword sheathed? But 
he did develop meekness later, right? And we can be guaranteed that he is among the meek that we will see again in the kingdom of heaven. Christ was also referred to as meek. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly or meek, and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. But meekness, again, is not weakness. Christ had ultimate power, and he demonstrated his meekness or self-control in the temptations in the desert. The highest evidence of nobility in a Christian is self-control. We should copy the example of Jesus, for when he was reviled, he reviled not again, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. All right, so the last part of my talk here is going to be about motivating others. Now that we have figured out where we are on the spectrum of personality and gotten our act, own act together, developed our own health aim, we can move outward to help others. Now, we're not going to be able to help all people, right? And this is obvious. Jesus had a low agreeable statement on this, right? Don't cast pearls before swine. That's a pretty direct and blunt statement, but it's true. Some people you can't help. So keep that in mind. He also told his disciples, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. When we think about motivating others, remember the three psychological needs, autonomy, competence, re relatedness. You must satisfy those or help your patient or family or friend or whoever you're trying to help you must help them satisfy those needs so that they can have the better intrinsic motivation. In medical school, they teach you motivational interviewing, which is how to interview patients in a way that, that helps them intrinsically motivate themselves or autonomously motivate themselves towards a better change. And it's basically how to talk about change with your patient. The first thing you want to do is help your patient or the person you're trying to motivate identify and resolve ambivalence. That's the key word, ambivalence. You must ask them questions to get them to confront their ambivalence for change because their old habits may be satisfying some need of theirs, like the need to control anxiety, right? Smokers are very nervous and they smoke cigarettes to control their anxiety and that's serving a purpose. You need to help them get to a point where they confront the ambivalence of continuing to smoke or stopping smoking and help them resolve that ambivalence towards stopping smoking. There's a children's story I wanted to go through real quick that I came across from the 1970s, so it's been around several decades, and it's called There's No Such Thing as a Dragon. And it's the story of a seven-year-old boy named Billy Buxby who wakes up one day and realizes there's a small dragon at the foot of his bed. Excitedly enthusiastic and assertive, you know, goes to his mother with lots of extroversion and tells her, Mom, there's a dragon at the, bed of, at the foot of my bed. And his mom very strongly tells him there's no such thing as dragons. And the dragon starts to grow. And it grows and it grows until it uproots the house and takes the house out of there. And the only thing that makes the dragon shrink back down to its size is when the whole family acknowledges the existence of the dragon, pets it on the head, and then it shrinks back down to a manageable size and things are better again. So sometimes some of, your, some of the people you want to motivate have no idea 
what metaphorical dragons are harming their health, right? You want to help them identify and articulate the metaphorical dragons out of the fog so that they can aim to confront those dragons before they get too big and powerful and they smaller and more fearful. So that's a good kid, uh, kid's story to help us. There are some questions you want to use for motivational interviewing skills called open questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries, ORs. So instead of telling people do this or do that, and if you're high in conscientiousness and lower in agreeableness, you're going to have a harder time motivating people. Because you're going to, your tendency temperamentally is going to be telling people do this or that. So you have to engage in the skills of motivational interviewing to a greater extent than someone that has more agreeableness than you and maybe a little less conscientiousness. You're going to need to focus on putting effort on asking open questions instead of closed questions and telling them what to do and help them to be. If you tell the person you're wanting to motivate health to how to get from point A to point B, you are stealing Success is what's like. Your job is to ask them questions, get them to confront their ambivalence, help them or nudge them, and resolve it towards health, but get them thinking and engaging in change talk and connecting the points from A to B themselves instead of you telling them how to get there. That will satisfy those three needs autonomy, competence, and relatedness, and get them to improve. There are, this is the last part of my talk, there are six stages for motivational interviewing that they teach you in medical school. Pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparedness, action, maintenance, and relapse. And I want to go through those with you. So here's a scenario. Your 18-year-old son is spending upwards of six hours a day of screen time and frequently texts while driving. He does not see it as a problem as his reflexes are above average and he likes keeping up with his friends on social media as well as binging educational YouTube media. media. So what stage of contemplation is he, or excuse me, what stage of motivational interviewing is he in? Pre-contemplation, right? He can see a problem. He doesn't recognize the metaphorical dragon that will get big and cause him harm. So how do you help them? First, encourage the identification and articulation of the metaphorical dragons by asking them questions. Why don't you see it as a problem, you know, how much time you're spending on social media? What if this happened to you when you're texting, you know, and a variable interjects itself when you're driving? You know, have you thought about what could happen in this situation or that situation? You get them engaging in change talk and help them find what could be harmful to them. Then you may need to give them some information and sometimes even scare them a little bit as to what could happen, but you want to do it in an autonomy supporting tact. And magnify the ambivalence, keyword there, help them resolve it for the positive and use hooks, what are called hooks, where you can hook them onto something that they're motivated intrinsically to want, like, 
you know, not be injured, hang out with their friends, avoidance of pain if they get into a terrible car crash, things like that you can talk to them about. And then you nudge them towards contemplation of something better. Often the youth cherish objects, pursuits, and pleasures that may not appear to be evil, but that fall short of the highest good. They divert the life from its noblest aim. Arbitrary measures or direct denunciation may, may not avail in leading these youth to relinquish that which they hold dear. Again, she's saying arbitrary measures or direct denunciation. It's highly conscientious and low agreeableness, and you confront your child like that, Ellen White says it may not avail. Let them be directed to something better instead. So confront them with their ambivalence, get them there, and encourage them to something better. Bring them in contact with truer beauty, with loftier principles, and with nobler lives. Lead them to behold the one altogether lovely. When once the gaze is fixed upon him, the life finds its center. The enthusiasm, the generous devotion, the passionate ardor of the youth find here their true object. Duty becomes a delight and sacrifice a pleasure. A college friend of yours is considering eating less processed sweets. She currently has an affinity to Oreos. Contemplation, right? She's thinking about it, but not sure how to resolve her ambivalence. So how do you help her? You encourage switch to Little Debbie's. Step in the right direction. <laughs> Don't tell uh, Rusty McKee about that. <laughs> uh, you magnify ambivalence, right? You get, get her to confront her ambivalence for change and encourage her to resolve it towards something healthier using hooks that she may be attached to. Encourage and support change talk. Get her talking about her barriers to change, okay? Avoid stealing from her success. Remember, Create an autonomy supportive environment within which she connects points A and B. Don't steal from that success or you will have less efficacy. And nudge her towards preparation, the next stage. You and your spouse want to increase exercise frequency and are ready to do something about it. You're prepared, right? So healthy provision of encouragement. Encouragement will satisfy their need for competence and warn about how revolutionary changes can lead to transitional chaos that can be tough to handle. And a system in setting specific achievable and reproducible goals aligned with their personality profile like we discussed and nudge them towards action. Sometimes it's hard to know if it's better to believe and then act versus act and then believe, right? Sometimes to do something, you have to act it out first and, and then your belief grows. It's not always straightforward. So if you can tell your patients to maybe just try it out first, they may gain the belief that it works later. And small accruing gains that can repeat are incredibly powerful. It's like hitting their dopamine receptors they will continue to make progress if they notice that from week one to week two, they're a little better. Week three, they're a little better. That will keep uh, intrinsically motivating them. So your job is to help encourage that. Your 41-year-old college friend has been dealing with burnout and comes to you for additional venting. This is quite common, right? He has made steps to better manage his time at work and at home, has reduced financial overextension, keeping up with the Joneses, but is still struggling at times with the caregiving needs of his parents and kids. 
he's in the action phase, but is still having some trouble, right? So you want to give him positive feedback. That's going to fuel his competence and intrinsic motivation. You want to encourage him to contemplate other benefits of setting other aims and help him manage any new temptations or relapse and nudge him towards maintenance, which is habit formation. One of your work colleagues has been meeting Dr. Greger's daily dozen list most days of the week and doing at least 45 to 60 minutes of exercise daily. So this person's doing awesome, right? If you're not aware of Dr. Greger's daily dozen list, here it is. It's basically the most scientific evidence we have out there in the nutrition literature to tell us 12 things we should be doing every single day to optimize health. Eating beans, three meals a day, or some kind of legume, the more the better, berries every day, other fruits every day, cruciferous vegetables, greens, vegetables, flax seeds, nuts, spices, whole grains, beverages, and exercise. Now, the spices include turmeric, quarter teaspoon a day, and flax seeds every single day, at least, you know, a tablespoon or so. Those two things people don't always think of as much, but there are benefits in those foods that are found nowhere else in the plant kingdom. And if you are not getting those nutrients, you are failing to get uh, beneficial things for your health that you can't find anywhere else. So interesting to know about. You can read more about all, the, all his work at nutritionfacts.org. I'm sure several of you know about his work. Very helpful public service website for everyone. So this patient is in maintenance. You want to give him positive feedback, continue to relate to him and support his autonomy, and help him manage any new relapse or temptations that may come his way. The last one is relapse. Your father was making changes towards optimizing health when he surprisingly receives a diagnosis of ALS. Sometimes there's suffering we can't get away from, right? So relapse can happen. What do you do to help someone like that? You help them preserve a sense of autonomy, competence, and relatedness. One of the rules in nursing homes is that you never do something for an elderly patient that they can do themselves. Even if it pains you greatly to sit there 15 minutes while they button their shirt, you let them regain that. You let them keep that independence. You let them keep that sense of autonomy. You encourage narrowing the time frame as a way to cope with suffering. So you can ask them, can you get through the next hour? Can you get through the next day? Help them narrow their time frame so that they can cope with the suffering. You encourage that they accept help, because sometimes they'll be reluctant to accept help, and you want to encourage or help them to accept help when needed, right? And help them or point them to the small daily graces that may still be around them. And you want to support and open up spiritual conversations and let them elicit their own ideas. Overall, seek to reduce suffering. In closing, set your aim in life high, as did Joseph and Daniel and Moses, and taking into consideration the cost of character building, and then build for time and for eternity. In doing this work for yourself, you are having an influence on many others. How much strength a word of hope, courage, and determination in the right course will give one who is inclined to slide into habits that are demoralizing. The firm purpose you may possess in carrying out good principles will have an influence to balance souls in the right direction. There is no limit 
to the good you may do. When you orient your life towards the glorification of God, ministries that reduce suffering and redeem human, human beings by optimizing yourself, becoming aware of who you are, and achieving self-control. We are to look upon every duty, however humble, as sacred because it is a part of God's service. Our daily prayer should be, Lord, help me to do my best. Teach me how to do better work. Give me energy and cheerfulness. Help me to bring into my service the loving ministry of the Savior. Our Heavenly Father has a thousand ways to provide for us which we know nothing. Those who accept the one principle of making the service of God supreme will find perplexities vanish and a plain path before their feet. So as you go out there and seek to better understand motivation in terms of how to create an environment within which your three psychological needs can be satisfied and you can be autonomously motivated and then help others achieve their autonomous motivation and aim them and orient them to, to the example of Christ, you will find out that there is a lot of dead wood in you. We are all sinners and we all need the cleansing and restoring fire of Christ so that new, better growth can come. And as you go out there, I will pray for your ministries. I wish you the best. And I hope that each one of you here can become totally involved, develop an individualized plan to expand range in your character beyond the constraints of your personality biologically and help others also achieve that while you help to optimize health with the end goal of glorifying God. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.